Hi, this is Pete Best, and you're listening to the Music History Project. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. You're in for a special treat today as we start a new series all about the Fab Four. And today we're super excited because we have a live special guest. Yay! So from our building headquarters here at NAM, we have Kate Mitchell. Hi, Kate. Hi, guys. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We're happy to have you. Kate is a big fan of the Beatles, so we looped her into the uh, the Fab Three. Now we are the Fab Four. <laughs> oh my gosh, look at that. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It was very clever of me. So who's who? I don't know. Okay. I'll be Paul. Okay. <laughs> so today we are very excited to present this uh, little talk for you guys and it's going to be a little different because you're not going to hear everything that is everything about the Beatles. We're going to kind of break it down and today we're going to start talking about the early days. So we're going to be talking about uh, Liverpool, the guys coming together, um, basically everything leading up to when they get on that plane and head to America. So we are very excited to have you and hopefully you're excited to hear us. So who are some of the uh, people that we're going to be hearing in this episode? Well, I'll introduce the first group, and uh, we're going to hear from a pair. Their names are Bernard and Sarah Michelson. And Bernard and Sarah Michelson work for, or owned, their parents, their dad owned, Hesse's Music, which is actually uh, the store where the guys, a lot of the guys went to get their gear back That's in right. Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Very exciting story. I mean, there it's sort of the the most famous music store in Liverpool because of the fact that the lads are always there buying. And in the early days, that's where uh, many people could go and meet the Beatles before they were the Beatles and before they were famous. And so there are many stories of people saying, "Oh yeah, I remember when Ringo bought his kit and that kind of thing." So they're kind of the uh, the the Manny's music of of uh, Liverpool. So it was really exciting to uh, sit down with both of them and conduct that interview. Then later on, we're going to hear from Pete Best. For those that don't know, Pete Best was the original drummer in the Beatles and played with them for, I want to say, two years. Dan's holding up two fingers, so that means I'm correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we got we were able to interview him um, earlier this year, actually, and that was a, a great interview. It, it it's It's weird. It was We were talking to a Beatle. It's yeah. one of those things that you never think you'd ever do in your life, so... Very so exciting. We'll be, so we'll be hearing from him. And then we're going to also be hearing from Billy Kramer, who Dan interviewed at the 2017 
Nam show, if I'm remembering That's correctly. Right. Correct. And he toured with the Beatles, correct? That's right. He's a singer, had a couple of great big hits, but interestingly enough, had a really great relationship with Paul in the early days, uh, which we'll be hearing a little bit about. And Paul gave a couple of his songs over to Billy to play before the Beatles actually recorded them, which is really kind of a fun little tale. We're also going to be hearing um, from a couple of other people, namely, I think Ivor Davis is one of them, the author and journalist who uh, toured around with the Beatles. Uh, He's got some great early stories to tell us. And then we're also going to get to hear from Louise Harrison, who hopefully has a little bit of name recognition with you guys. (laughs) Uh, She is the sister of George. So all of these folks are coming together to uh, help paint the picture of the Beatles in the early years, and all of these interviews are part of the damn oral history program for which people can access how, Mike? That is a very good question. You can access all of our oral history videos at www.nam.org library. Okay, so let's get started. Let's jump right in. And we're going to be starting with a section talking about Liverpool, because you can't talk the Beatles without talking about Liverpool. And uh, if I remember correctly, Kate, did you get to go to Liverpool? I have not been to Liverpool. Okay, so you did this, the Germany stuff, but not the England stuff. The Germany stuff, yes. D- Dan, did you get to yes, go out there? Yes, I have been there. And in fact, to <laughs> interview these guys, um, I was really interested in the Hesse story. And when I heard that uh, Mr. Hesse's daughter, Sarah, was uh, available and, and able to be interviewed, I was delighted. And then I found out that her husband, who she met at the store, who actually was employed in the store before she was, uh, were both available for the interview and, and it was a great it was a great afternoon you, as you'll hear they're very passionate they're very excited about the role in history that they've been able to play and Bernard showed me a receipt that uh, that they had from Ringo's first drum kit which was you know something that we're delighted to show and so this is absolutely a, a, a wonderful tie-in between the NAM and the uh, the NAM history uh, the music products industry and the beginning of the Beatles coming together so let's hear from Bernard and Sarah. After the Second World War, it was, it was badly bombed. Uh, it took a long time for it to uh, uh, redevelop. Uh, and, uh, you know, people, there was lack of jobs and uh, there'd been recessions. So one of the things about the bands was it gave them, a li- it gave a lot of young people a living. So whilst they had to work hard, uh, and know their music, it was also a way for them to provide, you know, an income for them. And also, we never ever had a fight in the shop or anyone give us any uh, reason to worry drugs or anything like that. We never, uh, we never had any problems in that area. There were, there were nice times to uh, be in. To be involved. And of course, being younger, I was one of the boys. <laughs> In fact, I've got to tell you, just recently we came, Sarah and I uh, came back from South Africa and on the plane there were a lot of people of my age, at that time, I'm I'm now in my 70s, but at that time I think we were in our 60s, and there must have been about 40, uh, about 30, 40, 30, 40, 40, yeah, with the the managers and everything, and it was the Searchers, the uh, Mersey Beats and uh, the Blue Jeans, Swing of Blue Jeans. And I hadn't seen them for years. And as soon as I recognised one of them, I think it was Ray Ennis, you know, all of a sudden I started remembering the names of all these guys. Hello, Bernie. 
It was such a so, fun journey home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Beatles uh, also purchased instruments. Yes, yes, yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, they they purchased. What did they have? They had uh, a Hofner. They had. Um, oh no! They, they purchased all the guitar, most of the guitars off us. Uh, but later on, uh, they used to get sponsored a lot. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, Ringo Starr. Uh, who before he was in the Beatles uh, with with Rory Storm, you know that, the only Rory Storm. So he comes and he says, I've got to have a really nice drum kit. So I said, Ringo, I've got a drum kit that's coming out it's over the next fun. few weeks, a premier drum kit, and it's in a beautiful brown chocolate oyster. Oyster shell. Yeah, like a, it's oy, to, uh, oyster shell, but in a lovely chocolate brown it was absolutely magnificent so I showed him a sample of the uh, material he said I've got to have it so I ordered this drum kit and I said it's going to be about six weeks delivery and of course I've not got a ledger account on it because he used to get a cash till receipt because his mother was a money lender and he didn't need any credit he was like the wealthy guy you know uh, and eventually the drum kit came and uh, uh, Sora and I delivered it to him you know but in between that, in between delivering it, Brian Epstein came into the shop on one occasion and he, said, he says to me, because there's a personal friend of mine, Brian, and his, his brother really, Clive, but Brian came in the shop. He said, Bernard, you know this group, the Beatles? He said, he said uh, you know, I'm, I'm managing them now. He said, I'm looking for Ringo, Ringo Starr. I said, well, Ringo was in, funny enough, a couple of days ago. I've ordered a drum kit for him. He said, What's his address? Well, I never like to give addresses because, you know, private, even then it was private and confidential. I said, but if you come in on Saturday afternoon, he's coming in to pay me a further deposit. Anyway, to cut a long story short... He came in. He was wanting to see him because he had him replacing Pete Best, who was the previous drummer. So I was very worried because I'm saying, you know, I've taken a deposit, I've got all the money for this drum case. You know, he's going to let me down, you know. Anyway, he didn't let me down. He His bought mother. the drum kit, and uh, they went to America. They went to America, but before they went to America, Brian Epstein came in to see me. He said, "Bernard," he said, "You know, Ringo's in the band now." He said, "We're going to America," and this is like this is already a few uh, a few weeks after, you know. And uh, he said to me, "I've got to have some decent amplifiers." I said, "Look, Brian." If I can get you Vox amplifiers, uh, will you pay all their accounts? Because they owe me about eight hundred pound, you know. So eight hundred pound in those days is about twelve hundred twelve hundred dollars now, isn't it? That sort of thing. But in those days, it was a lot of money because it was probably ten times that amount. You know, everything's changed. You know, and it, it, anyway, to cut along, so I'll do it for you. But what he didn't know is the Vox amplifier had already been on the phone to me the previous week, I think it was, and he said, "Look, Bernard." You know this Beatles or Crocodile, Crocodile, what, what is it, the Beatles? I said, it's the Beatles. He said, they seem to be in the newspaper a lot these days. He said, we'd like to sponsor them. So I said, I'll see if I could use my influence. And that was <laughs> Tom Jennings from, uh, that was Tom Jennings from Vox. So it all tied in together. So they got their so amplifiers. Kind of like, they got their amplifiers. I got my 800 pound. 
so the Beatles were straight on the books, and you can see I showed you the Ledger accounts before. They were absolutely. We, we stopped chasing them. You know, they didn't have to. We didn't have to cross the road when we saw them. And they got the. And I organised uh, the amplifiers to go to America with the Premier drum kit. Premier drum kit. And I said to Premier, I said your your uh, your drum kit's going to be on show. But as soon as he got to America, Ludwig with her. And Ludwig gave him a set free of charge. And I never saw the Premier drum kit after that. <laughs> so that was, that was the, uh, that's a story with uh, Brian. And of course, uh, you it's know, very sad. Brian was a lovely guy. And uh, he, 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 he appreciated after, he, the four or five years he was with the Beatles. Uh, it was like an eternity. He changed the whole face of the world, really, didn't he? Music business. Mm. You can tell that they just really embrace that history uh, of the shop and stuff like that. It's it's kind of sad to hear that it's no longer open, but the building is still standing, so history lives on, I guess, in that sort of situation. Um, I I think it's important that they took time during your your interview with them to discuss the state of Liverpool after World War II because that was really a time when music was shifting from what I've been learning listening to all of Dan's awesome radio interviews which are slowly going up on our website Um, especially here in America because big bands were dying rock and roll was kind of getting its foundations I'm on the right track right absolutely you're right and I think that's a really important element of what um was the foundation for the Beatles. You know, they created something. They heard something in the music that they were inspired by, Buddy Holly in particular, uh, early Elvis recordings and the like, along with Skiffle, which was a sort of a folk music type of sound in England at the time. And they combined all those sounds along with this drive that Paul and um, John had to write their own music, which of course is very much compelling and a very big part of why they decided to get together so that they could um, listen to their own songs, play their own songs, and uh, and expand on that. So it's really exciting to hear how that all came together. And um, a big part of that, of course, was how they first met and where they first met. And uh, for that, I think we're going to turn to Pete Best. Yeah, so as Mike mentioned earlier, Pete Best came here to the NAM building, which was really cool. So we all got the opportunity to meet a beetle, which was mind-blowing. Uh, Kate got to meet him, too. She got to come down and say hello and stuff like that. What were your impressions of Pete? Uh, he was so nice and welcoming and really appreciated that uh, he was being kind of welcomed into the oral history, I think. And uh it was just so much fun to get to meet a Beatle, as you said. It was awesome. Yeah, I don't think often we find ourselves too starstruck working in the industry and you cross paths with people and you're like, oh, look, there's so-and-so or, you know, I had lunch in the same room as so-and-so. But that was one that the whole building, like when we made the announcement in the morning that he was going to be here, the whole building like stopped and did a double take. So it was a really cool experience for sure. And the best part about it, in my opinion, is what a heck of a nice guy. You know, I mean, he could have a chip on his shoulder, but he clearly doesn't. You know, he's a humble guy and and it was almost like oh well you want to interview me oh okay and, and he knows his role in history but he's very humble about it I was very impressed by that yeah so we're gonna be hearing from Pete best uh, first talking about uh, meeting the boys and then his first impressions of John and Paul I'd seen George play before with the last year corset but actually meeting John and Paul that was the first time and then, of course, I met Stu, Stu Sucklers, who was John's friend. Um, he was persuaded to pay Blaise. 
uh, in the Casbah. Okay, they'd found out that he'd won fifty pounds. John Moore's exhibition, and John's sitting on one side of the table. Paul's on the other side of the table. I'm standing in the corner. Stu's in the middle, and the conversation goes. You want fifty pounds, Stu? Yes. Would you like to buy a bass guitar? Silence. We'll teach you how to play. Okay. You're in. And the next day he went and bought a bass guitar. The next time I saw him, he was playing with the band. Mm. And that was that was how Stu got in. Yeah. Wow. So what was your first impression of uh, John and Paul? Uh, Paul was very much even as he is today, very PR-orientated. You know, he was the one, what's, what, what are we going to do? How do we do it? How do we pitch it? John was his, and I think that drew my fascination to John, out the two of them. I liked his image. I liked the way he handled himself. He had a rough edge to him, and I liked that. Uh, so, yeah, you know, they, they each had their own individual traits. Um, but that worked for the band, you know, when we... When we were five, there were five personalities, <coughs> each with their own characters, you know, different characters. We put them together and we fused into this incredible rock and roll band, you know, which is what the world found out afterwards. You know, I remember my dad talking about the Beatles when I was a kid, and he talked as much about Pete Best as he did about the rest of them, as if there were five. Um, that was just his impression, his introduction, because he first listened to them even before they came to America. So um, it was always strong in my mind that uh, Pete was a Beatle. And so it's really awesome to hear that uh, firsthand accounts, I mean, sitting toe to toe with this guy and just being able to hear what it was like. And you can tell by his mannerisms that he was very passionate about it and was very pleased to be a part of that, that history. And what was in uh, an impression that I got from that interview really was the that I never really thought about before, which was how important it was that there was a venue for these guys to actually get together and do their thing. I mean, you, I, I think, oh, they met in school, so maybe it was on the playground or, you know, in somebody's garage afterwards. I mean, there had to still be a place where they played, and it turned out to be um, Pete Best's mom's club. Um, and that is really an exciting part of, of history. So we're going to hear a little bit about that. But I also wanted to kind of, uh, I know we'll talk about this in a minute, but to get uh, Kate's impression of, of the clubs and why that is an important venue for people to get together. Well, I mean, where do you play as a kid? I mean, you play in people's basements. That's where you start off. And that's essentially what this club was and uh, the guys got to even put their own mark on the place and I read somewhere that they actually helped paint it in order to finish it which is so cool this was really theirs and through their residency and their help with starting up the club I mean it was fundamental in having a place to be seen and heard throughout the time. Well, and what I really took away from it, too, is uh, the one we really owe all the credit to for the Beatles is uh, Pete Best Mom. So right. shout out to moms. <laughs> no uh, yeah, what a cool mom. Yeah, embrace your kids wanting to play music. You know, you never know. They could be the next Fab Four, you're saying. Well, and I've heard on a lot of different occasions that, you know, some of the strategies that has really worked is, you know, I don't. Kid, parents saying, I don't mind my kids practicing in my garage or in my basement because at least I know where they are. So 
that's a really positive wave. You know, a lot of others say, gosh, it's too loud and whatever, but, you know, hang in there. And I totally agree with you, Elizabeth. We have to encourage uh, parents out there to be mindful that this could be the next Beatles or nothing else. You are watching your kids. You're being a part of their lives. You're being excited about what they're passionate about. And I think her excitement and her own background in music certainly uh, allowed her um the flexibility of putting up with other people coming in and playing. And I'm sure they weren't all that great when they first started as teenagers, but she picked up on their passion, obviously. And that's an awesome uh, testimony. Did Mike's parent, did Mike, did your mom embrace you playing with your friends in her basement? Yeah, well, of course, both my parents were, I mean, I came from a very musical family, but yeah, it was the same comment that you just said, Dan. Um, they, I was playing drums in the basement, so they always knew where I was. Hmm. And now they're wondering where all their uh, residuals are from your big <laughs> life of success. <laughs> uh, I also had a drum set in my basement and my brand practice there, and we did not become the Fab Four. <laughs> but thanks, Mom. <laughs> I'm sure you were close. <laughs> so we're going to go back to Pete Best. Uh, this time uh, he's going to talk a little bit about his mom's uh, club opening up, right? Yeah, we're going to hear him talking about the Casbah. And so I'm also sort of curious because with your, your mom promoting music and, and bands and mm. really giving young kids an opportunity to play, right? She um, opened up the shop or this club underneath your mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, the Casbah. That was the start of it all. I mean, she nurtured this idea. We were sitting watching television one night. And there's a program on about the Two Eyes Coffee Club in London, which was another nemesis for rock and roll. You know, some of Cliff Bridges, the Shadows, the oil emanated from there. And at the end of the program, she very casually turned around and said, because we had this wonderful old house, you know, old Victorian house with cellars underneath, you know, the complete understructure of the house with cellars. And very casually she turned around and said, oh, tomorrow we're going to start work and turn in the cellars into a coffee club. And it was just a casual remark like that. The family turned around and said, who's going to do that? And she went, you are. Mm. And so the next day we rolled our sleeves up, sanding machines. For about six months it looked like a construction site. But everyone joined in and then, the, you know, that particular night came. She set the night for the 29th of August. I think it was the 29th of August, 1958 or 59. And uh, that was it, you know, the band was all lined up to play. We thought so. No, a couple of weeks before, I'm the Les Stewart Quartet, of who Ken Brown and George Harrison were members, came down to someone with the morning and said, that band is now defunct. Okay, it doesn't work anymore. They'd had an argument over something. And the mother turned around and said, my goodness me, or worse to that effect. Um, that's doctrine up very politely. And she basically said, I need a band. And George turned around and said, I happen to know a couple of guys who aren't doing anything at the moment. And, uh, you know, they might be interested because the gig was going to be a residency every Saturday night. And that was like gold to young kids. You know, you've got to remember about 16, 17 year olds. And it was very much a case of, uh, they came down the next day, and of course history portraits now, they turned out to be John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And my mother put the gig to them, uh, they turned around and said, yes, we'll accept it. When I had a look round it, um, she said, what are you going to call yourselves? And John said, well, we used to be called the Quarrymen. So she said, that's fine, you're the Quarrymen. 
And uh, they had a look round and they realised that there was something to be decorated, a little bit more work to be done. They rolled the sleeves up, it was their club. And, you know, the good thing about it is the Casbah today still stands in its total entirety as it was, you know, originally, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And all that decor still there, you know, the Lennon ceiling, the McCartney ceiling, <laughs> the Harrison ceiling, it's all there, you got to see it, it's down, it, you know, it's a piece of history in itself. And that was the emanation of music at the Casbah. Again, it was a brainchild. All right, so that was Pete Best talking about his mom's club and the guys kind of getting together and forming their roots of the Beatles. Um, so we're going to shift venues and we're moving away from the Casbah and fo- refocusing on another venue called the Cavern. I've never been there, but of course it's very famous as being the place where the Beatles were even further exposed than the Casbah, which was a nice club, but in the family home, uh, the cavern was well known. Uh, a, a, apparently, four or five really well known pubs were ac- ac- around the area. So this was much more of a gathering place of musicians and um, really the center of attention. So many bands wanted to be playing there and and performed. And apparently, several in the months just before the Beatles were there were actually quote unquote discovered. And that was the beginning of the British invasion movement in that a popularity of all of these different bands coming together. It wasn't just the Beatles. A lot of people think, oh, the Beatles started that British invasion. Of course, they were the first ones over that made a big splash. But meanwhile, there were a lot of bands coming together in that region that later became very popular. So uh, that was a very exciting time. And as we heard from Pete um, during his interview, they were just thrilled to be able to play at the Cavern. That was a big, big milestone for the band. Yeah, so let's hear uh, again from Bernard and Sarah Michelson about the Cavern and uh, how the beginnings of Beatlemania, I guess you could say, trying to escape all their adoring female fans out of that venue. And, of course, we used to go around to the Cavern and I, and the, the Cavern was always uh, open lunch hour. You know, between 12 and 2 o'clock, and all the youngsters in Liverpool, and there were many thousands of them, used to go in, uh, you know, and they'd have a drink, but there were no alcohol served. It was all orange uh, only juice. Only orange juice. I don't think even Coca-Cola had come on the scene at that time. If it did, it was... Uh, that was in its infancy. Infancy, yeah. Uh, so they'd have maybe a sandwich, and it was always going bankrupt at the cavern. It was always... You know, uh, oh, it might close. It might close because they haven't because they didn't have alcohol. You know, now the clubs and restaurants, uh, the turnover of alcohol it, it keeps it in profit. Mm. So, uh, but, but we used to go around, uh, and I used to put all the amplifiers in, and I used to see the bands and the groups, and uh, you know, so it, they were exciting times. They were, and you know, you never had any. Uh, fights or uh, all the youngsters were good you, you didn't need a policeman patrolling uh, the area to make sure they're all right and if you see the scenes of that time you know it was a nice time and a proud time to be alive because it was a, it was a, time, of, it was a time of poverty in Liverpool but the Beatles if you want to know about the Beatles when they played in the cavern at lunchtime they always came into our shop after they played and um, we had a back door that led into Button Street, which is actually only down the road from Matthew Street. We used to come in our shop, and then all the girls used to run in after them, and we used to let them out the back way. So they were exciting I thought times. they were chasing me, the girls, but it was the Beatles. <laughs> 
So once again, that was the Michelsons talking about the cavern and the Beatles rushing into the store after playing, trying to escape all of their female fans. Great story. Which is just kind of the epitome of the Beatles, and I guess it all started there, the the crazy Beatlemania and the, the screaming girls and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So next up, we're going to hear from Billy Kramer uh, talking about the cavern and the Beatles. And Dan, you got a chance to interview him at the 2017 NAMM show. Yeah, thanks to our good friend Brian Vincent, who uh, hooked us up. Uh, Billy toured with the Beatles in the early days, knew the boys, and went on to have his own career. So it was uh, fabulous to uh, to have a chance to talk to him. So here are his impressions of the Beatles at the Cavern. Nobody knew that they, you know, I mean, I remember uh, being uh, in a place called Witness and Telstar by the tornadoes. And instrumental, it's just gone to number one. And they were rehearsing Twist and Shout in the dressing room. And they were going to London to re- record. And I said, what are you going to record? And they said, a couple of songs we've written ourselves. And I said, well, why don't you get some famous American writers to do something for you? Because, you know, I, I, you know, at the cavern I'd heard, like, Slow Down and Money and all the other songs that were on the first album. You know, um, I'd never heard them apart from once I heard them do Please Please Me. You know, when I heard Love Me Do, I thought, I didn't think it was the Beatles. It was nothing like, you know, what I pictured them to do. You know, I thought it was too cute and nice, you know. They were much more rock and roll at the cavern, you know. And I always said, you know, um, if you didn't see the Beatles at the cavern, you never saw them. That's, you know. So what do you mean by that? What was that like? Because they didn't wear suits, and they spoke a lot more, and they showed their sense of humor, and how they were, they were a lot looser. And they just, to me, had a great sound, you know. Uh, When I went on the road with them, and we did weeks everywhere, you know, it was just screaming kids, you couldn't hear anything. You know, um, but the cavern, they had a following of people that appreciated the music and, uh, you know, it wasn't like a teeny bopper band, <laughs> you know. All right, so that wraps up the cavern and we're gonna shift over to the next venue, uh, which this is probably the epitome of Kate's expertise on this podcast. And that's their trip over to Hamburg because you got to go to some of the clubs that they played in, right? Yeah, I actually lived in Hamburg for a while and did a little Beatles tour while I was there. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. I went to Indra, which we all know is the the first place they played. And they still have such a strong Beatles culture there. Mm. Um, They have all these little like dolls hung up around there and they have a plaque on the outside commemorating their first show. So the the culture is really strong and they're very proud of it too. Is that tour you described, is that something that like you kind of put together on your own? You just did your research and went or is that something they kind of embrace over there? They do embrace it. I just did it on my own, Mm -hmm. but they do have official Beatles tours. There's a lot of them. So if you want to go to Hamburg and get a a walking tour and everything they've got a lot of really awesome ways to do that that's so cool so going to the the clubs in Hamburg that um, had the Beatles play oh I lost my train of thought oh boy Uh, visiting those clubs did you 
get like is it you know how sometimes you walk in a room and you get like a vibe we mentioned this on our sun records one like you go into the sun Records studio and you just like you feel mm. the energy do you did you feel it there oh my goodness yes um, <laughs> especially i mean if you go in there with that sentiment of being a huge beatles fan in the first place you walk in and you just go oh my goodness they <laughs> were here and this was you know at their when they were young and they were just kind of trying to make it and you feel that you feel the the evolution of the band and the guys and knowing hamburg as well that city is an interesting place and uh i can see how they really grew up there and it's it's an awesome feeling well i think they went there with the mentality that they wanted to try to be an international success right just leaving liverpool and going over to hamburg and so there was sort of a lot riding on it, I think. And the the idea that if we can make it here, we can make it anywhere kind of deal really was in their mind. So the fact that that town still embraces that history is kind of cool because it was really them that made the Beatles. Uh, it certainly uh, inspired them to continue. I think it's a bit of a symbiotic relationship now because the rock clubs and stuff in Hamburg really feed off of that vibe and energy that came from them and their growth. Well said. That's cool. So, Mike, what are we going to do next? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. Let's hear from Pete Best, maybe. <laughs> Sounds good. So we're going to hear from <laughs> Pete Best <laughs> talking about Hamburg and um, the drum kit that he was using. And tell me about going to Hamburg. That sounded like a very exciting sort of pinnacle point for the band. Well, we said if it hadn't been for Hamburg, there may never have been a Beatles. You know, same as the Casbah. If there hadn't been a Casbah, maybe there never would have been a Beatles. You know, maybe they'd never have got together again. That particular, the first trip out to Hamburg was the baptism of fire for us. We didn't realize what we were going into. Uh, we didn't realize at the time that we were going to be playing the San Pauli area, which is the biggest red light district in the world. You! <laughs> and, uh, you know, biggest entertainment quarter there. It was totally different to anything which we'd see. You know, totally different from Liverpool. Uh, Reaper Barn was just this fantastic stretch of neon lights. Windows, doors, prostitutes, bars, clubs. Our kids, you know, teenagers, haven it was, you know. And we were no saints, you know, we enjoyed ourselves, but just an aside. The long hours we played, six, seven hours a night, when we got told by Bruno Koschmieder, who was the, suppose, club manager, okay, that would be the Kaiser Kel and the Indra, he basically turned around and said, uh, you'll be playing Monday to Friday, seven o'clock to two o'clock in the morning. You'll have 15 minutes off every hour. And it's Saturday and Sunday, you'll play 7 o'clock until 4 o'clock in the morning with 15 minutes off every hour. And that was it. That was it. We were gobsmacked. Uh, it was rock and roll, you know. This is what rock and roll's all about. But we didn't realise it at the time. Those long hours we put in. It's just like constant rehearsal. We honed our talents, you know. Uh, musicianship grew, our stagemanship grew, our characters grew, everything grew, personified itself. And because of that, when we went back to Liverpool, we were this humongous rock and roll band, right, with incredible power. And it just blew everyone away. Literally blew everyone away. 
they couldn't believe it. The image had changed, the sound had changed. We brought this, you know, fantastic rock sound back to Liverpool, and that's what captivated the audiences. And were you still playing that same blue drum kit? Yeah, I was. Yeah, was yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, that had a great sound. You know, thank you, Mr. Swift, for pointing out that 24-inch bass drum. It was great. Okay. <laughs> you remember the cymbals you played? Yeah, uh, at that stage I had a Zin. Uh, I had a Zin cross cymbal. I put my own rivets in it. Remember drilling it. And I had a, a Zildjian ride cymbal. Yeah. I mean, who better to hear about that experience than the guy who was there playing drums, right? And unfortunately for Pete, that was kind of the end of his experience with the Beatles. Um, he didn't last too much longer, unfortunately for him. But as we mentioned, he's just, he's really embraced it. He's taken it in stride. He's making it a part of his life. And it was great for him to come tell a story that um, many pro people would probably interpret as a difficult one to tell. Absolutely. I mean, and for many years, I think it was very difficult for him. Uh, he wasn't treated very fairly by anybody's account. Um, and it was very difficult the way that uh, he was told the news that he was no longer in the band. Um, but all these years later, he has, as you said, really embraced it. I think in the late 80s, somebody asked him to come to a Beatle fair uh, just to play and hang out. And he was so warmly embraced, as he told us. Uh, he just felt like part of the family. He didn't feel um, shunned or any of those uh, feelings that maybe he had felt. Um, for many years, he was uh, loading bread in a uh, truck in uh, Liverpool working for a bakery until he retired with a pension and figured that was what he was going to do for the rest of his life. Um, and then here's a sort of this second win came with these Beatle fans saying, hey, you're part of us. You know, we they didn't look at it the same way he did. Uh, he wasn't rejected by them by any means. In fact, the, uh, the opposite. So all these years later, since the 80s, he has been playing all around the world. He has done all kinds of very uh, interesting things. He's raised money for charity. He's done all the things that he really had always wanted to do. And thanks to the anthology that came out with six of his songs, he was paid, uh, well, what us Beatle fans like to say, a little bit of compensation for uh, what he did in the early days that really helped put that band on the map. And he was finally compensated financially. Uh, so that's always a good feeling to have as well. And since then, he's become a household name. Well said. Yep, absolutely. So we've taken you from Liverpool, uh, post-World War II, the boys kind of coming together and finding their own, all the way through getting the club scene set up, having them play, getting out of England into Germany. And so we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. And we're going to focus on uh, the man kind of responsible for really getting them to America, I would say, and that's Brian Epstein. Right. Their manager had a lot to do with it. They trusted him to uh, make the right decisions. And from the very beginning, he said, we got to get you on the Ed Sullivan show. And so that was his main goal. And of course, he was very successful in doing that. So we have a couple of people from the oral history program uh, interviews talking about them. I think Billy Kramer, the singer, is the first one up. And then after him, we're going to hear from the Michelsons again, um, talking about the same thing, Brian Epstein. And then wrapping up this section, we're going to hear from Pete Best talking about George Martin and his final days in the Beatles. So tell me a little bit about Brian. How did you first meet him? Um, I was aware of him because I'd seen 
you know, what he was doing for the Beatles. And I'd never ever contemplated being a professional entertainer. I was in, into engineering, and uh, but I played most nights with, we became very popular locally. And um, there was a newspaper called Mizzy Beat, and they had a popularity poll. And the Beatles came first, and I came second or third. And there was like a, a night where everybody was presented with a little trophy of some sort. And Brian seen me perform there. And I'd also done shows, I'd opened for the Beatles locally quite a lot. And then I was going away to crew to Rolls Royce and I was going to pack it all in. And then one day um, I had this manager, his name was Ted Nibs. And he said, Do you want to come into Liverpool on Saturday? And I, I said, Sure. And we got the bus into Liverpool and uh, went to this restaurant and Brian was sat there and Ted said, Brian would like to manage you. Um, I've taken you as far as I can, which was, you know, very nice of him. I wouldn't have signed with anybody else, you know. I would have had to stayed in engineering. But um, when he gave me that chance, I. I jumped at it, you know. What was his personality like? Um, he was a, you know, he was just a regular guy, you know. Um, he was very, I'll be honest with you, he was a lot more refined than most of the people I'd met around Liverpool. He spoke very eloquently. Um, he dressed like, to me, yeah, like, you could tell he was the, Everything was the best. Mm. It was all Savile Row and gold cufflinks and the Rolex watch and, you know, expensive ties, you know. And was it he who helped you with your first record date? Um, yes. Um, he gave me a song which was on a tape of uh, John Lennon saying, Do You Want to Know a Secret? And I did auditions for different record labels and then I went off to Hamburg and played the song every night I was there and came back and then I auditioned for George Martin and then Brian called me and said George wants a release do you want to know a secret and I said don't you think we should find a good song you know I mean I wasn't aware that the Beatles were so prolific you know, as songwriters, I'd only seen them do covers locally and at the cavern, you know. Um, I didn't really, you know, I didn't think it was an A-side, I didn't think it was going to be a smash hit for me. Um, it totally took me by surprise. Hmm. You know, it was kind of difficult because, like, I was, I, I once told my wife, told my wife this tale, Many times of like it was strange to sort of go to Manchester on the train and um, be this blue-collar worker, you know, um, and go to Manchester and sing "Do You Want to Know a Secret" and throw secret files all over the studio, and push filing cabinets over, and you go back home, uh, which is only 30 miles away, and there's a thousand kids 
outside your house screaming and, and the police have to get you in and out and your whole life changes it, it was uh, it was it was fun you know and I was flattered by it. I always say like you know uh, you know I didn't do that well with the ladies and suddenly they're all screaming you know but I, th I think it helped keep, keep my feet on the ground what sort of guy did you find Brian to be well, Brian was... A very gentle. <laughs> at royal status, if you, if you could dine alongside Prince Charles or the royal family and he wouldn't be out of place. He was very, very well educated, came from a very... Uh, lovely family. Lovely family, who they were all privately educated, very respectful, very charming, uh, and if he said anything, he kept... He kept to his word 100%, and that's how the family was. Uh, and it's the same, I, I, was, but I was more friendly with Clive. Clive, his brother, I was more friendly with. And of course, we were friendly with the, uh, the family itself, uh, his mum and dad, you know, they, you know, they had uh, furniture businesses, in, uh, they used to manufacture furniture and sell furniture. Uh, and then they opened the record shops, and NEMS was where they were. And NEMS stood for the North End Music Store. The North End Music Store, that was NEMS. And uh, in the day, uh, there were very, very big record people. Uh, because, you know, they, like HMV is now, you'd have something like 10,000 square foot of selling space, selling records, mm. all vinyl. Then, no 8-track at that time. <laughs> no tapes. No CDs. It was just pure... Uh, you know, vinyl records, which, as I said to you before, it's a much nicer reproduction. Mm. So, that, so the answer is, he was a very nice fellow, very nice fellow. Um, maybe a bit naive in ways, because uh, the whole business has changed from that time to what it is now. Mm. It's completely changed. You know, because now, uh, you know, uh, there's so many different angles to the way, uh, you know, Turner is produced for, for rock bands and uh, producers and what have you. You know, you've got so much more sponsorship and that sort of thing now. Yeah. Whereas then it was totally, totally different and licensing and the lawyer, you know, the law side of life, the legal side of life is in its infancy. Now that is a different proposition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, in the world of um, recording studios, George Martin certainly is uh, high up on the list of major influences, and it sounds like he took a liking to you. <laughs> I wish he'd taken a bigger liking. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was a case of... Uh, when I was kicked out, we went back to George, um, because he was the only one that we could approach. <coughs> My mother tried to get in touch with Epstein. I tried to get in touch with the lads. They weren't coming to the phone. Okay, so the only avenue we could try and find out, you know, what had happened or what was responsibility for was go back to the recording studio. And she got in touch with George Martin and explained the position. And of course, he, he turned around and said, I didn't realise Peter left the band. He said, uh, whatever's happened, he said, it's been taken out of context. He said, because Pete had such a big drum sound. Um, and he said, it was a ferocious drum sound. And we 
needed time to capture that drum sound on record or get Pete to adapt you know, to the way that we wanted to play. He said, so what I was going to do was use a session drummer. You know, he said, not change the physical lineup, not change anything that happens with live performances. But initially for a couple of takes in the studio, I'll use a session drum. Um, he said, but somewhere between that and whatever happened between Pete and Brian Epstein and the boys, he said it was taken out of context. So he said, when Pete didn't turn up for the next session, you know, he said I was told that Pete had left the band. Um, and this was the new drummer. And of course, the same thing applied. He listened to Ringo and it was like, no, I'm still using the session drummer. So that was, um, you know, he fought my corner. He turned out and said, you know, it was, a, it was a big drum sound and we needed time to, you know, hone it up, hone it up and get it the way they wanted it to be. So Pete uh, really, you know, again, has got some perspective on everything that's happened. And uh, while I think he's he's still a little bummed out about the way things happened, he I feel like uh, I always got the impression that he understands why it happened. He doesn't like the how, but he understands the why, you know, and I think that's uh, pretty big of him, you know, because that's a huge oppor missed opportunity, I think, unfortunately. So we're going to shift to our last segment here, and uh, that's the boys getting ready to head to the States. And the first person we're going to hear from is Louise Harrison, who you're going to hear is <clears throat> should deserve a lot of the credit for getting them over to the States. Um, she was living here prior to them coming over uh, in the Midwest. Was she living in the Midwest, Dan? Yeah, I think so. And <clears throat> she really had her... You know, ear to the ground here in the States, um, picking up the trends, seeing the opportunity for the Beatles and their music to come over, really listen to a lot of what was coming out on the records, on the labels, and relate a lot of that information to Brian Epstein in order to get the boys the best traction when they came over. And she wasn't shy about it either, which is really nice. She has a whole binder of letters that she wrote to every radio station she could think of, every uh, record promoter, concert promoter, concert venue, even people that there was no way the Beatles were going to be involved with as far as maybe, you know, uh, performing at least her first tour. She still sent cards and letters out to them just to let everybody know what was going on. And I mean, talk about a rallying call. Uh, she really, really got those uh the troops uh excited and and uh, ready to embrace them when they did finally arrive so here's Luis. i really don't like talking about this but it's, it's in my book too but uh it was um, marty who's going to be playing something for you after a while who really insisted that uh i should let this part of my life be known he said you know uh, after all um, you're in your 80s and it's not really right that the rest of the world doesn't know your um, involvement in the early Beatles story. And uh, he said, you know, it's, it's only fair that people should know uh, what, what you were doing in... <laughs> I'm embarrassed talking about this. But anyway, <laughs> in, in 1963, uh, I had moved to this country and my, my children were just, uh, you know, toddlers at the time. Um, my, my husband was a very, very brilliant engineer, was in great demand all over the world. We lived in Canada and South America before we came to the United States. But um, anyway, when we moved here, <coughs> uh, he, he had a very, very good job. We had a nice house and we were very, very comfortably off. 
and my mom started sending me the um, singles that my brother was and his band were doing. And so uh, she was the kind, I think I already said this, or maybe it was yesterday I said it, but um, she was the kind of person who would not have said that they were a good band if she thought that they were just playing and having fun. But she kept saying to me, no, they're really, really good. They're outstanding. And so she kind of uh, encouraged me to see if there was anything that I could do in this country uh, you know, to further their career. So, as I say, she was sending me all of these uh, singles. And uh, I decided, OK, I'm going to go to some of the record, uh, record store, record, uh, not record stores, radio stations. and. Uh, I would go in there with the records and say, uh, hey, you know, this is my kid brother's band over in England, and, you know, they're number one, and maybe you, you could be playing them here. And for the most part, I was just being looked at like, okay, you're, you're a woman, what are you doing here? This is a man's world, you know. Uh, so I didn't get very far with this. I started, okay, what do you have to do in order to get a record played? I didn't realize at that time that it was because I was a woman that they were totally disregarding me. But I, I realized that you have to do something more than just have a record to get it played. And so I started getting the Billboard and Cashbox and Variety and all of the magazines about the business and starting to study and find out what was, you know, how it, everything went. And I discovered that. Uh, the major record labels in this country at that time were RCA, Columbia, and Capital. So <clears throat> I started writing to Brian Epstein, their manager, and uh, saying to him, uh, you know, one of the things that you need to do is to, um, in order to get airplay, is to have the backing of somebody with some clout, like, for instance, a major record label. And so, um, you know, I was writing to him every week. I was doing 16-page handwritten letters. I didn't know how to type. I was at a very ritzy uh, high school, and they thought, that, again, in those days, that um, I would get married to a, an ambassador or something and always have a maid and a, you know, and a secretary to type my letters. So I had to write them in longhand. Anyway, um, I was writing all these letters, and we were starting to watch the Ed Sullivan show in the evening. Where, living in this country. And so one of the other things that I started saying to Brian was, uh, try and get them on the Ed Sullivan show. So over the months of writing back and forth to him and giving him the, the advice that I was gaining from all of these, you know, the, the information I was getting from these magazines, um, and he, he was writing back and, and he started sending me uh, records from some of his other groups. As, as he put it in one of his letters, um, I'm going to take the liberty of sending you um, some of the recordings by Jerry and the Pacemakers and Billy J. Kramer, some of the other groups that I control. And so, uh, anyway, I, I was again trying to, to do something about these people too. And my mum at this point, I've got a letter from her where she says, why is it that Brian Epstein is trying to get you to um, uh, you know, promote his other bands? You know? I only want you to promote the Beatles. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I have all of these letters. I still have all of the original letters. And uh, I am thinking of maybe uh, offering to loan them to the uh, museum for a period of time. Well,
That would be a great exhibit, I think. I'd vote for that. Yeah. But um, many of the letters are um, reproduced in my book. They're very, very tiny. You'd probably have to get a, uh, what, you, what, what are those things? Magnifying glass to read them. But uh, they are in the book. So you can see for yourselves, you know, what, what actually was said, what was going on between us. The label, the first label that they were on was Fiji. And I asked Brian, you know, maybe I could go and visit VJ and find out something more about them. And he sent me the address, and I w it was in St. Louis, and I went to the address that he sent me, and it was just a, um, a vacant lot. <laughs> and I wrote back to him and I said, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but you know, it's obviously not a big company. Uh, so uh, anyway, after a few months, um, he wrote, well, he did start to, you know, pay attention to what I was saying. And after a while, he wrote back to me and he said, uh, uh, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm, you know, watching, listening to what you say very carefully. And he said, the next record is not going out on VJ. He said, I've instructed the people not to, it's going out. And then he put, he said, more news later. And then on the bottom of the letter in red ink, he put, it's going out on Swan of Philadelphia. And I thought, oh, what? <laughs> but obviously to Brian in England, Philadelphia sounded pretty important. And so uh, I still got back at him and I said, well, you know, okay, and I uh, know you're trying, but he had also mentioned that e EMI. And so then I started finding out more about EMI and I discovered that EMI was the parent company of Capital. And I'd already told him, you know, Capital, Columbia, and RCA. So then I wrote and said, hey, well, they, Capital Records is one of the ones, one of the big ones in this country, and they are a subsidiary of EMI. And since the Beatles are already with EMI, maybe you can do something about it. So he started trying to get with Capital, and Capitalists kept saying, we don't want those, those guys, you know, they're no, they're no good, you know. Of course, they later made millions out of the Beatles. <laughs> but, um, you know, to begin with, Brian was having a hard time trying to convince a big person to take over and, you know, look after these four lads. So, uh, you know, it was, it was quite a struggle. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I was just like my mum and dad, you know, but one of the things that my dad said to me early on was, when it, anything that you need to do, he said, nobody, when, when, it, when it, we're born onto this planet, nobody knows how to do anything. We don't even know how to breathe until somebody gives us a slap on the behind. So he said, whatever you want to do in life, you're starting from the beginning, just like anybody is. And so if you really want to do something, you've got to be, go at it with a determination and never, never give up. And so I was going after this thing about getting my kid brothers on the radio, and I was pursuing it with determination and also with the idea that I'm never, never going to give up. Once again, that was Louise Harrison talking about her involvement with the Beatles and their success. Moving on, uh, to wrap this episode of the podcast up, we are going to hear another new voice, and that's going to be Ivor Davis. Ivor was working as a journalist and was assigned to travel with the Beatles on their tour of the United States. And we got a chance to sit down with him in April of last year. And he's going to wrap things up perfectly, talking about his first impressions of the Beatles. My first impression of the Beatles was that they were kind of, well, they were jet-lagged. Okay, I, I, I realized that. And then 
um, I got to know them and, and became almost like family because I was with them. In the, I was, they were in limousine number one, I was in limousine number two. And it was like royal visits. We zoomed through cities, wherever we landed, limousine, police escorts. I thought this was the way the Queen of England must travel. And the boys warmed up after the first two or three days. And the reason they warmed up, Dan, was that, that basically they were prisoners in their own hotel. They couldn't leave the hotel. And I was on the same floor as them, maybe in adjoining rooms, and we hung out together. And I like to tell the story, and this is true, that three o'clock in the morning, John would call and say, come over, we're playing Monopoly. And, he, and, and I, okay, John, I go over, he played Monopoly. Uh, John uh, cheated a bit, but we won't go into that. <laughs> uh, and, and, and by the time we got into the full rhythm of the tour, by the time we got to New York, uh, it was, I, I'd wander into their room, they'd ask me things, but they felt comfortable with me, and I liked them. They were all fresh, absolutely originals. John was brilliant. John was always streets ahead of the rest of them, to be honest. He had a mind like a, a lightning mind. It reminds me of Robin Williams, who I interviewed. John was just so fast. Uh, he was terrific. He was a provocateur, by the way. When I met him, I said, my name is Ivor. And he said, you're Ivan the Terrible. I said, no, it's Ivor. So he liked to needle you. And, and, and um, Paul was, actually, Paul is the guy you see today. Mr. Smoothie, um, uh, you know, he, he just would come up in the, on our private jet and say to me, uh, would you like a gin and tonic? So I would say, yeah, give me a gin and tonic with a twist of lemon, and he would give me a gin and tonic. So it, w it was a closeness that you never, you could not have today. Because as you know, uh, in, in, in those days, they didn't have bodyguards and police. They had two road managers, Neil Aspinall and Mal Evans and Brian Epstein, and that was it. Uh, it, it was amazing. And they had lousy speakers and the sound system was terrible, but the concerts were a different kettle of fish. So that was Ivor. And if you want to read his book, it's called The Beatles and Me on Tour. And I read it before Dan interviewed him. And it's pretty good. It's it's a light read. So it's a good uh, beach book or pop culture kind of book. And it just gives you real insight into what his life was like, which is a really neat perspective, different than what you see when you... Uh, digest beetles material mm -hmm. so we just want to say thank you to everyone out there for listening and a special thanks to our special guest kate thank you so much for stopping by thank you guys so much for having me this was a lot of fun and we will check you guys in two more weeks bye bye, -bye.